Bet you wish you were here. All right, welcome back to my podcast. All right, all right, welcome. Hello there, welcome back to my podcast. Um, sorry guys, I'm just gonna. I'm back on the. F- I I relapsed on uh, wacky voices. To be honest with you, um, I just yeah, I love them. I love them like. Guys, what are you thinking of my podcast so far? Do you like it? I have to say now, and I, I'm obviously a little bit biased here, but I've just been listening back to a couple of bits and pieces there, and I have to say I think it is class. Like, it really is. Now, I, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts myself, but in the ones I've listened to, like, Jesus, it's well up there, like, it's well up there. There's such a great range, like, and um, different perspectives. None more great or rangy than today's guest, guys. Now... You may have noticed, I told you in the last episode, like, there's always methods to my brand of madness. I went over to Britain, first of all, didn't I, with the, the podcast. We had a bit of Scotland, we had a bit of Wales, we had two efforts from England. Um, North, or sorry, I had Northumbria as well. I North, like, I mean, a lot of you probably didn't even know about Northumbria. And I shed light on that for you. I've come home now, guys, with my tail between my legs. I'm over in Southern Ireland. Now, a lot... A lot of you know, be like, if you know my stuff, you'd be like, oh, I bet you know he's talking to some shinner, like, or, oh, yawn, so predictable. Yeah, well, you know what, mate? You're about to get the greatest shock of your day because my Southern Irish politician guest is actually a member of Fundgail. So just if you're listening outside beautiful little Ireland, just for a bit of context there, like, you know, Sinn Féin, I suppose, and Fine Gael would be... They'd be the two largest parties now at the moment in the south of Ireland. And they'd be quite ideologically apart, I suppose. Sinn Féin would be much more left-leaning traditionally. And I would say the Fine Gael are kind of centre-right. Now, I'm sure loads of people will be ringing into this podcast <laughs> and complaining about my characterization there. But look, my phone will be off anyway. And that's the main thing. But I'm talking to... I'm just going to tell you who the guy is, first of all. And then I'll tell you a little bit about him. How would that work for you? So my guest today is a chap called Neil Richmond. He, as I say, is a Fine Gael politician. He's a TD for Dublin Rathdown since the 2020 general election. Like myself, he's on kind of Team Irish Unity, as it were. But he's kind of got a Church of Ireland unionist background. And so I think he's got quite a unique perspective. And as he says himself in the interview... A kind of an understanding of the northern unionists that maybe many in the south wouldn't have park all that stuff i say it in the interview but i'm going to say it from the outset an absolute gentleman and i have no bother with saying that because i don't buy in i'm going to repeat myself now you've heard me say in other episodes i just do not buy into this kind of thing of well he is part of the party that we all dislike over here on this side of the fence he is them we is us he is bad, we is good. Now don't you go getting me wrong. My feelings on Fine Gael haven't changed at all after speaking to him. I still believe they're the party that have always put corporate interests ahead of public interests. They are the party who more than anyone else have perpetuated a kind of a partitionist outlook on the country. You know, pull up the drawbridge, two fingers up to the Northern Nationalists. I don't believe they're a party that can enact any meaningful change in the problems that plague Ireland, such as housing and health. I haven't changed my feelings on any of that. But what has happened, though, is I've opened my mind to the fact that persons, human beings within those parties can A, be sound, and B, they can really surprise me when they talk in depth about their reasons for getting into politics. 
I absolutely take on board and take the man on his word when he tells me that he got into politics because he wanted to make a change in people's lives. And you know what? For the record, the few people that I know that would know him as well all said the same thing, that he was sound. Now, a lot of them would say, I don't know what he's doing in Fine Gael, right? But that, I mean, that's I'm just saying that. That's what they would say. But then again, I am probably talking to people who are a little bit more on the left and they're kind of more along my thinking politically. But everyone was unanimous about the fact that this guy is a good guy and he's actually trying his best for his community as far as we can see and he's always been that way. I think it's interesting. It's, it's not just interesting, it's important to note that. So... I mean, you know, you might be thinking, Jesus, man, you're four minutes into the podcast now. I don't actually understand how you're still kind of up to your eyes in a moving monologue about Neil. And that's a fair point. He talks to me about being called a West Brit, his vision for New Ireland. At one point, he kind of, I think think you could say kind of challenges me to a fight. And um, yeah, just, just listen to it, really. I begin by asking Neil why on earth he's talking to me. Without wanting to be sycophantic, I find you very funny. Um, Yes! I I enjoy your stuff, man. And um, particularly when you're having a pop at the likes of me. And most importantly, within politics and wider civil discussion, social media has changed so much and everyone has to be so on the whole times. And I really think it's incumbent on those of us, particularly public representatives, those of us in the public eye, to show that we can disagree without being disagreeable. That we can go hammer and tong in a studio, in a chamber... But we can then go for a cup of tea or we can not necessarily go for a walk holding hands because can't do that at the moment. But all that <laughs> sort of thing. And um, just looking at politics around the world in the UK and America, it just we all do the same job. Why do we have to be so divisive, you know? Mm. And someone who comes to my constituency office looking for a bit of help, I don't ask them what their politics is. I don't care who they vote for. They have something that they need help with. And sometimes in the past, I would have gone to the local Sinn Féin representative and we would have worked together on local issues no intention of going in government with anyone from Sinn Féin anytime soon but that doesn't mean you can't get on and I think we actually need to make a bigger effort now more than ever before to show that we can get on and I don't want to be sycophantic to you but I would just quickly say I've always found you to be well A an excellent political performer but like you're very sound and I think that no you are though you're sound like you know you've actually tried to do little things for me like you know point me in the right direction or something with my show and I suppose it's an eye opener for me as well that sometimes the online thing can be very much this guy's Fina Gale so he's the enemy and I think the us and them kind of mentality is really dangerous and I mean if you look at something like Unity which we'll get onto we're both come from different backgrounds and that but we both have the same goal and same desire so I just wanted to put that on record that I think you're sound Ah, you're very good. No, no, no. Get it on record, man. Get it on record. Other quick question just about me there would be you're a boxer. Do you think you'd take me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I know the viewers can't see my hands but they are they are quite petite. Um, the manicure looks great. <laughs> thank you. So with that in mind tell us who Neil Richmond is for listeners who I mean most people in Ireland will know but Hopefully there's a UK audience for this as well. Who's Neil Richmond and what do you stand for? Yeah, I suppose I'm a TD, so a member of Parliament where British friends have been in electoral politics for nearly, over, well over a decade, nearly 15 years now. I'm lucky to be a dad, I'm lucky to be a husband. I've been born and raised in the constituency I represent and I love doing a job where I'm actually able to make people's lives a little bit better every day and I hope that I will be able to continue this for some time yet. Can I ask what does being Irish mean to you? Yeah, this is a tricky one and I think about this a lot actually. And I kind of come to the conclusion that it really doesn't matter what box you try and put yourself in. 
left, right, east, west, north, south, gay, straight, man, woman, non-determined. When you're Irish, there's this common personality that we all have even those who go out to, out to the extreme to tell everyone they're British. We all share the same personality and I'll find, and it's the classic thing, you go into a bar in New York or you're sitting beside someone in a pool. You know, when you're abroad, you're sitting on a train, a long train, you find out someone's from Ireland. You've very quickly work out where they're from and who do you know in common and have you gone out with their cousin? And I just think that's really <laughs> special. And it doesn't take very long and you don't necessarily see that with other nationalities. Mm. That real wanting to find that we have a connection and we'll establish a connection regardless of who we are and where we find ourselves in the world and in turn we're very good at looking out for each other Mm. particularly when we disagree with people that if we're in an alien circumstance we see someone having a hard time I like to think we're very very good at um, jumping in and putting the arm around the shoulder and saying look you know that's enough of that you know and apart from that I think we're quite good crack as well and it's a very distinct approach to humour that penetrates every stratus of Irish life and I think it's something to be very proud of. We've lots of faults as a people, as a country and I suppose that's the other thing, as a people we're not defined by borders you know, you find people who are passionate about being Irish living in New York or London or Mm. Perth or South Africa and I don't necessarily know if you find that with other nationalities Lovely. Can I ask you about your family? Because I've heard you speak about the fact that, say, members of your family would have actually left the 26 counties, presumably fearing persecution because you're obviously from a Church of Ireland background. Can I ask, what would Irishness have meant to them? Well, it was a long time ago. Yeah. But a lot of my relations, so put in context, my late parents, at one stage, none of their siblings or first cousins lived in, in the South. They'd all either gone up north or to England or further afield. Right. And that was the sort of common. And wasn't necessarily initially fearing persecution. It was like they still had the concept they were British. So if you were British and you wanted to work in a certain sector, you obviously got drawn to London or Edinburgh. You want to be a civil servant, you go to London. They went to schools which encouraged, well, go to third level or go to work in what they would have called the mainland, which was Great Britain. Irish was very much part of them, but they didn't see that as being any different from they were also British. Right. So it was more of a practical sense, but with the wider, I suppose, Protestant slash unionist population. And I, I always go to the strain that not every Protestant was a unionist and not every Catholic was a Republican, which is often forgotten from those further afield, particularly from those from, sadly, from countries where religion has been black and white divided, mm. um, like the Balkans and places like that. But certainly a lot of people, you know, the saying was home rule is Rome rule. And you know what, for a lot of our early part of our history as a state, it was. You look at de Valera's constitution you look at the role and the heavy influence the Roman Catholic Church had over our schools over our hospitals over our society over our social laws and you can talk about Yeats' speech as a senator and divorce and all these sort of things but that sort of would, would have got caught up and there was an attitude that if you were Protestant therefore you were British you know the Brits out mentality mm. and that has only sapped away I'd argue in the last 20 years there's always been that lingering element of it But certainly speaking to relatives who live in the north or who live in England now or Scotland, they would have talked to their parents and their grandparents because it was that generation. They said, you know, that was the sort of... There was people who went out of the way to make them feel unwelcome. Right. Even though they were born and reared in Ireland and could trace their ancestry back centuries. Yeah. That was a distinguishing mark used. Mm. I did a play on um, Ireland's reign in Wimbledon tennis at one point, I think at the, the late... 19th century Ireland was like world leaders in tennis but we don't really hear about these people at all because they were kind of 
Protestant. It's like, like cricket. Ireland yeah. have a huge cricketing history and then the GA were going to incorporate cricket into the GA. Like there was something like dozens of clubs in Tipperary and it's still got these you know, um small areas like North County Dublin and the northwest up around Straban and, and places like that where it's it's a real people's game. Mm. It's a real working class game, very similar to England or Australia. But sport plays a lot of it and if the ban that the GA had meant that they couldn't play cricket, they all mm. stopped and it became the preserve like a lot of sports of certain schools and certain backgrounds and that adds into generalizations and unfortunately elements of division and segregation. Not segregation in a dramatic sense, but yeah. just a sort of a kind of an invisible segregation that people don't think of. It's like we don't have a border on this island, but there is a divide mm-hmm. societally and it's really hard to break that down, but not impossible. Can I ask you just on the religion thing again? Because I just think that's fascinating because, well, it's fascinating to me anyway, because the religious thing in the north is obviously front and centre all the time. But did you feel growing up uh, or even now, do you get hassled because of your, your faith or your background? Yeah, I get pronounced hassle at the moment. It's used as something to attack me with. I'm Church of Ireland, therefore I'm West Brit. Right. I hate that phrase. And my late mother, he say, never let anyone call you a West Brit. You are Irish. You're not some outlier. Right. And it's some people use it as mocking and people think it's funny. But it is used as a term to make you different and less Irish. Right. Purely because of religion or what sport you play or what school you went to. But everyone's experience growing up is different. It's shaped where they are. Like, your average... Protestant growing up in Donegal or Cavan would have had a very different upbringing than I did in South County Dublin. But yeah, you would have got the passive, certainly growing up, people would have graffiti on the school. You know, I went to a different primary and secondary school than the lads on the road. And that was grand. And it gets a little bit fumbly, you know, like, oh, what'd you get for your communion? Oh, I didn't make communion. (laughs) Um, What'd you get for your confirmation? I have to wait another three or four years. And you go to Sunday school and it's like, it's not really school. Like it's colouring in Jesus. It's it's quite... (laughs) Pleasant. That sounds like a laugh. Yeah, no, it was, it was actually, and the baking is phenomenal. Um, but you, and you, it's nice to play up the sort of the generalizations, and you know, we love a hymn, and we love a bit of baking, and we put our toaster in the cupboard. That's nice, and that's funny, and we see a lot more of that now, and it's okay. Yeah. But there was a time where you'd have up the ra dubbed on your school wall. Brits out was a common one. Getting a bit deeper, we would have worn poppies. A lot of relations who would have done that and very much you got into the car and, you know, make sure you take that off because if someone sees you walking down anywhere in Dublin wearing a poppy, you're just opening yourself up for abuse. You know, don't walk around in your cricket gear. You know, you go to Dublin now, every second person's walking around in cricket (laughs) gear. Like it's... Hipsters like. uh, (laughs) Hipsters are just quite good at it now so people want to play it again. But it's the same in in the North. Like I know because my family's originally from the border from, from Cav and Monaghan era and like they didn't necessarily move outside their circles you know it was relatively sheltered you went to certain schools you went to church on Sunday and you farmed and there wasn't time like my grandparents didn't have time for sport they were busy working and they didn't have time to lose themselves in politics either you know there was yeah. there was things to be done they worked a seven day a week but there's certainly I would have found that like my wife went to a Protestant school. She's not Protestant, not that it matters. Um, she played hockey with my sisters. You know, you've a, you do end up finding that you hang around a lot with people who go to the same sort of schools, and it's it can just multiply like that. Mm. Then you move abroad and you try and I just want to staff. I lived in Africa for a while, and we were playing rugby in Ghana of all places, which is a bizarre sentence to say. And they used to divide the teams between Christians and Muslims. And not in any sort of badness. It was just the easiest way to do it because yeah. there was a 50-50 split in the neighbourhood. 
and uh, there was a couple of English guys there and I said yeah but which are the Protestant Muslims and the Catholic Muslims <laughs> and they just didn't get it I was like this is as good as a gag as I'm going to produce like, a great gag <laughs> uh, they were like no, no the Sunni or Shia mate. Oh. I'm just there like I'm wasted here like the next thing I look over the Scottish lad thinks this is brilliant like, but yeah. yeah of course yeah yeah well yeah and like I think another person there would go under with that kind of background I mean I'm not and, and I don't feel you're painting it like this was horrific but there's enough experiences there that another person will go well I need to stay in by the walls here but yet you went into public life what was it about your character do you think you overcame the kind of feeling that like you're the outsider here really I mean were you made to feel that way enough where it was a factor no it'd be funny though you'd, you'd go to a Fine Gael meeting and they'd be talking how their great grandfather fought with Collins and go like no don't really think so uh, <laughs> or which of their family was at the Easter Rising and um, all this but no I was very lucky I'd two wonderful parents who were just so involved in everything in the community. We're talking PTA, sports clubs, um, charity fundraisers. And I was the youngest of four and it was in a really nice, subtle, and it's only in hindsight now that I really appreciate it and kind of understand it. it was drilled into us. Get involved in your community. You're very lucky. You have a duty and responsibility to give back your energies or your abilities. I'm not going to go build hospitals because I can barely put up a shelf um, but I got involved in in politics and I was really like I was the nerd who collected election leaflets when I was a kid we were always reading like the paper in our house was very much the Irish Times and you were reading the paper when it came in from a young age right. started the sports section work your way up to something a little bit heavier in due course Morning Ireland was on and you paid attention the news was watched at six and nine because you might something might have happened in between right. it was way before internet or social media or anything like that and I can remember knitting blankets for orphans in Romania when we were seven or eight it's what you did you know and like you'd no choice about doing the concern Christmas fast because there was no dinner being cooked so we were all in and um, and it wasn't in a dogmatic way and it was just you know they're doing a neighbourhood clean up out you go there's a bag pick up some rubbish and that kind of lent itself to politics none of my family are involved in parish politics at all i found out way after I joined Fine Gael that my mum had briefly been in Fine Gael in the 80s when she was one of Garrett's girls. There was a huge generation oh, of women yes. who got empowered yeah. to join Fine Gael. My dad was a bit of a floating voter. He would have voted amongst parties and would have taken his vote really, really seriously. My brother, who's 10 years older, like anyone who has an older brother, says, well, I was in Fine Gael a lot longer than you were. Just didn't tell you. <laughs> sure did, yeah. And... Um, and obviously for selection convention purposes, they're all paid up members now and they love going to the odd meetings and things like that. And they, and they do get very into it. And politics, it doesn't matter which party you're running for, you're independent, you rely utterly on your family. People joke about politics, oh, it's all about nepotism and the family seat. But if your family aren't dialed into you being in politics, even just as an active member, it's impossible to do it. Right. It doesn't matter what party you're in. They're the ones who will tolerate you missing a couple of family engagements. They're the ones who will come canvas at election time and when you have had a particularly rough day and you're getting loads of abuse on social media, they're the only ones who see when the door closes that sometimes big burly lad like me does have to have a little cry and a cup of green tea or something else like that. And I'd like to think, I've definitely spoken to enough parliamentarians across all parties and other jurisdictions that it's all the same, but Ireland is, because of our electoral system, it's uniquely personal, which is what makes it, in my opinion, the best electoral system, but also exposes you to that, which means throughout it, when I eventually joined a political party, it kind of just made sense. Right. That's mad now, because in the kind of Manichaean good and evil perspective that you get online... 
you know, Sinn Féin are the good guys in my world and Fine Gael are the baddies and I just assumed everyone in Fine Gael was just motivated by cash. It sounds terrible. We were playing Lego <laughs> last night with my three-year-old and my in-laws were over and uh, we were talking about politics and opinion polls and saying, no, no, Sinn Féin are, are doing very well. And my, my three-year-old piped up, are they the baddies? <laughs> and, and without a hesitation, of course they are. <laughs> are we the baddies? We're, we're the good guys, yeah, we're the good guys. I'm yeah, wearing your blue shirt for the morning for school. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't want to hammer this point uh, home too much, though, but, like, people transcend the ideology as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, so, like, listening to your motivations for getting into politics that transcends the cartoony kind of black and white ideology for me. Do you feel that's an online thing or that's the real world as well? It's a mixture. Everyone wants to put you into a box. Everyone really wants a simple, rigid ideology because it's easier for them. But it's not like that, particularly not in Irish politics. We don't have that hard left-right divide. And I spend a lot of time, obviously, in European countries and other global countries and you kind of go like, oh, this is left-right. We're all kind of muddled in the middle. And yeah, on certain things you might go a little bit right. But then there's like key social issues. Yeah. And like, there's no way to pin the average position of someone in Fine Gael. And when, I suppose society and society move politics to be a lot more open about it all of a sudden you know all these people who had it kind of bottled up but mm. you know turn around I was a closet repealer and like I remember like I used to work for Livia Mitchell the TD and oh, yeah. she was the sole voice it seemed like in Fine Gael talking about a woman's right to choose but then you had this whole generation who'd come in and incrementally move the dial so much and certainly I like to think and this is very you know misty eyed that everyone who goes into politics goes in with the same intention. They just want to make things a little bit better. How we think things can be better is different. Doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. And I think once we kind of swallow that and go like, just because we disagree with them doesn't mean they're wrong. Yeah. And as long as you're straight with people, and I think the easiest thing to do is have a pint or a cup of tea or a meal with someone who you utterly disagree with in politics. Yeah. Because you can kind of park that and say, right, I want United Ireland. You don't. What's the special of the day? Yeah. Um, <laughs> like and that. then you find out you've actually lots of stuff because as I said you do the same job Yeah, there's only 160 TDs in the country there's only 160 of us who appreciate who understand what a voting block at 2am means to your mm. sleep cycle you don't have one and your passion for black coffee and things like that Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the other things I'm lucky I'm a Dublin based TD so I go home every night I didn't want to run in the European elections because I couldn't hack being away from home three or four nights every week and I'm looking at friends from all parties who have young kids or don't have kids and maybe they've never had an opportunity to have kids or to have a relationship because they're constantly on the road and you'd be that open with someone and go like you know I'm a bit lonely and go like yeah well good enough show us your expenses and like you know they're, they're oh. the more human you make politicians I think the better a politician they'll be yeah well I mean loneliness is, a, is a, an existential I mean everyone feels lonely regardless of what your job is like for the record you know not maybe people aren't interested in my opinion on this but I mean I hope they are because it's kind of my podcast that um, I do I mean I actually disagree with you there in so far as like I, I think some people are motivated some people are careerists but on all sides they are but but I'm a careerist yeah if you if you look at it but you're not exclusively I left college with a MA in politics or worked for two politicians you know intern then job as a parliamentary assistant then became a councillor senator TD like I've worked loads of other jobs bartending bouncing hence I said I could take you in a fight <laughs> building sites all this again all the you know coaching sport <laughs> all this sort of stuff but my career has always been politics and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing 
to say, you know, yes, there's people who come in from other walks of life, but there's also people in politics who have always been in politics. And I was very lucky that when I became a TD, I'd had four years in the Senate and five years as a staffer to a TD to fall back on. So it's not that I hit the ground running, but I didn't panic for the first two months wondering where the toilet was and being too proud to ask. Yeah. And so I think that what makes politics so important that we keep this way is that level of diversity, that someone can come who maybe didn't finish school, came in, came straight from their working life and brings their perspective framed in their politics, someone who's always worked in politics, someone who's changed career, they've maybe been a, worked in finance or someone who's come off the, far, the land who's been a farmer. I think it's really important because if you get into politics saying, and like, where, where I think you're, where you're getting into the career is that someone goes like, well, I have to, you know, now that I'm in here, I have to go up, I have to go up, I have to yeah. go up. That's exhausting. You know, you get in there to do what you said you'd do, or at least try. Yeah. Because a lot of things you say you do, you, you can't, you know. You can try your hardest to get things through, but sometimes things aren't possible. But it's not necessarily about the personal gain or achievement, particularly for those of us who are in political parties. Like, I remember the general election was a really, it's hard to say, it was actually a real mixed day for me. Brilliant, I'd become a TD. I'd waited, you know, I'd missed out to run two times previous. I'd, I'd wanted to be a TD more or less since I was 20. Huge day but Fine Gael got a kick in. Mm. And I'm there going like, how can I be so happy for myself? And then, you know, it's like scoring a goal in a match and then you lose. You know, it, it's tempered. Yeah. Um, and that's why I'm in a party because the collective is so much more rewarding. Right. Yeah, no, I know what you're saying. I mean, I still just think it's grades. Like, so, I mean, every, you've got to be careerist up to a point because that's ego. The ego gets the job done. That's That's very functional. But some people, I think the careerism like is much stronger than the desire to help people by grades I mean I believe that your desire to help people is there like it's I don't you know there's nothing about you that feels inauthentic when you're saying that but I think you know politicians on all sides it's grades as to how much the careerism is there and then the desire to help people I think and I also just want to put on record here now as well at the moment that I fight very dirty so like <laughs> you've said three times now that you take me and it's starting to annoy me because I fight way dirtier than you I'd say I have to worry about my credibility like you're, you're on a podcast with a confession or like obviously you're going to win but you know I have to at least put up a fight verbally before um, and another defence comes in <laughs> another point of information I just see I, I have to look after my base as well I feel the Sinn Féin actually are the goodies just to, just to return to that earlier point we're playing Lego with a three year old <laughs> <laughs> well see if I was passing by I'd pop in the window and I'd say look you've got that wrong So now I'd love to get on to Brexit. I think you really kind of stand your ground. You've represented your country very well in, in the whole kind of shit show. Is it funny? Is it what's funny about Brexit in your opinion? Was there anything or is it unfunny? Is the whole thing unfunny? It's like tragic comedy. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's it's all funny. <laughs> but it's all so sad. And like Right. And we're now at the stage that what we were accused of saying years ago was Project Fear. It's starting to happen. Mm. Food's rotting in the ground. Food isn't supplying on shelves. There's concern about medicines coming in. Lots of people, 80,000 people have been rejected for settled schemes. So they feel like foreigners in a country, they've made their own home. This particular British government has driven such a hard, nasty, mean Brexit that... I, a lot of people struggle and I go like oh, there's lots of decent people in the Tories and for record I'm not a Tory if I lived in the UK I wouldn't vote for the Here Conservatives indeed my uncle was a, a Lib Dem councillor for 20 years which I don't know if it's better or worse alright but um, interesting 
Yeah, we can talk about yeah, that yeah. in a bit, but um, wonderful in one way is that like it's very rare in politics you get to work on something that you're really passionate about. Yeah. And you can throw, and being a senator, you have the time to really throw yourself into it. Because oftentimes you can find yourself having a spokesmanship or a brief on something that you can do your work on and, and you can go out and you can push the party line and maybe you can build in. But like I've been obsessed with the European Union since I was 16 I love following British politics, have a really strong connection with Northern Ireland, emotionally, personally, as well as fascination. So to be able to bring that together and then tick in various bucket lists, like getting to go on Channel 4 News or appear before a House of Lords committee, yeah. being asked to write opinion pieces for certain papers. Like like I've made myself, during kind of lockdown, like I took a step back and I thought, that was mad. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. How did I spoof my way into that? Like... Um, and a lot of it was ignorance at the time. Like, I didn't really know what certain shows were. And then you'd hear like, oh, yeah, it's got five million listeners. Like, oh, good thing I uh, good thing I got dressed for that one, you know, because <laughs> a lot of it's over the phone. It's just so, so utterly sad because I do, like, so many friends in the UK, political and people who are like civil, you know, civilians, for want of a better word. And it is as much as we have our historic gripes and whatever degree of Irish are, like, we love giving out about the English in particular, you know, we all secretly cheer for whoever they're playing against, although this particular English football team is hard to dislike. Mm, agreed. Um, and then at the same time, I'm, I'm an Arsenal fan, you know, love that contradiction. And you're kind of going like, it is, all that said, it, it is a very impressive country. It's such an important country in the world stage. It has been so bad in so many ways to Irish people in Ireland, but it's also been so good so many Irish people have gone over there and made such a success of their lives. Look at Afghanistan. If it wasn't with the assistance of the British military, we wouldn't have got 30 Irish citizens out of yeah. probably hell on earth at this stage. So it's that whole balance. that That's why Brexit is so tragically sad. And then you'll read a headline in one of the, the various newspapers and you go like, do you actually believe this? And you'll speak to their diplomats who are really intelligent, smart people. And they go like, well, this is the decision of the government. And then you'll speak to a couple of MPs who are still there. And I said, like, come on, you can't seriously believe this. All right. And they go like, well, I don't want to put my head above the parapet and this is what the people want. And I said, but you never took any time to actually describe and inform of what you're going to do. Mm. And politics in, in England in particular is so different to anything we can associate with. Like, So the constituency I represent, literally born in a hospital there, went to school there, lived there, very lucky to be raising my family there. In England, like half of them just represent a constituency. Yeah. You know, that the electoral system lends itself to spending your entire time in the Westminster bubble and thinking that that's all that matters. Yeah. And like, I think in Ireland, we're very good at grounding anyone in society. You get grounded a lot. Mm. You're, you're becoming extremely prominent. <laughs> and I'm sure... You're becoming mate, extremely grounded as well. Yeah, I'm sure your mates are, go like, don't get ahead of yourself now. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You haven't won everything at the Fringe Festival or whatever yeah. it is. And they do it in a nice way as well as a begrudging way and far more in a nice way. But you know, at the end of the day, you can't talk down to people about food shortages if pretty much every Saturday morning someone's going to see me in Little Raldi. That's... And like, it's great with the masks. You can kind of hide now. Mm-hmm. But they're kind of looking at you and going like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah You're yeah, doing yeah. all right now, aren't you? Yeah. Like, oh, all right, I'll put the own brand, get back in. But I don't think you see that in England. It's so... You're not... They're not... A lot of... English politicians, and I keep saying English deliberately, yeah, yeah. they're not forced to get out into the constituencies. And there's a real difficult balance in politics. The same at a European level. You'll have MEPs who live in Brussels 
and you have your Irish MEPs who are doing red-eye flights on a Monday morning coming over and then trying to chase their tail for the weekend to get around and make sure people don't think they've become too distant. And it's the same colleagues of mine coming up from Dublin. Mm. You know, they're all itching. And people make fun of it going like, oh, they're all itching to get back to the constituencies. But that's politics. It's not all in the chamber. You know, you could lose yourself just... You'll get a representation, as we call it, on a door and that'll end up becoming legislation in due course. It's not all about... And people go like, oh, you're only cared about fixing potholes or medical cards. And it's like, yeah, but if if you really need your medical card, that's who you look to. Yeah. And like I had an eight-year-old lady who was too scared to go out of her house after four o'clock because the street light was broken. And I know someone goes, oh, why are you worrying your time with that? And I go like, well, she didn't know who to come to. So she came to me and I did know who to go to and involve the council and the ESP. And it was fixed. And she's delighted. And that's why you're in politics. Mm. The same way on a Brexit level, we don't have a border on our island. That is the great achievement of the last five years. We haven't had a return to a hard border. And it's very hard to conceptualise it. Those of us who were around when I was a teenager, kind of the Good Friday Agreement, remember what a hard border was looked like. Remember how miserable it was being going through certain parts of the north and you'd be worried and you'd feel be made you'd feel uncomfortable regardless of which sort of area you were going into politically. But like we don't have that. And I don't think we can ever lose focus of how close that came to being Mm. and it might have been long winded and fallen in and all that but that was the huge issue for the last five years and I'm just very grateful that I was able to be a passenger on that ride to an extent and see some of see Irish politicians civil servants and European civil servants I've just you just get to meet the most talented people particularly the diplomats no one ever talks about a diplomat but you see people who are just so committed, so driven by the right reasons. And then equally you'd see people who are so concerned in the UK about what's this going to mean to my kids. And you see that with Brexit here too. We can't just dismiss them no. just because we don't disagree with them. A lot of them come from really deprived constituencies. And there was a Labour MP, really good guy. He had voted Remain reluctantly. And we were having um, a drink couple of months after and he'd voted for all the Brexit deals even though he voted Remain and he said look the European Union's great if I went to university and I was like good point yeah. and here's me waffling on about Erasmus Plus mm. I'm like okay well how do I then spend more time showing how passionate to believe the European Union's great for everyone and demonstrating it and that it's not all about Erasmus or CAP funding or all these acronyms that mean nothing um, but then you turn to someone and go like well your food isn't laced with hormones and your water is clean and your air is clean that's the basic and we haven't blown each other up for 60 years as a continent Yeah that's really interesting actually I might segue to a question I was going to ask later on that because that's really interesting I mean like even in, in the prospect of a united Ireland if there's still that disparity in wealth is there any point in being unified at all then? Like if we go into the next generation where we've just taken on an extra, I don't know, a couple of million people and there's still the same disparity in wealth and, and ha- like, have you anything to say on that? You know, is Fine Gael the party to, to reduce that gap between the, the rich and poor? And what's your vision for United Ireland in terms of disparity of wealth and resources, basically? Mm. That's always been, the, that has characterised Ireland forever. Like I think... There's no point trying to achieve a United Ireland if it's not going to be better than what we have at the moment, north or south. Mm. It has to be a new Ireland. It has to be something that is dynamic and it brings them together. Like a lot of people, they make a fuss about the block grant going from London to the north. But we have block grants consistently going around geographically in the south from pro- property tax or various other things. Mm. I just think if we look at, there's a lot of aspects of life in Northern Ireland that is just better than what we have now. 
and there's some things that we put on a pedestal because we do like doing down things and when you put it in an international comparison I remember being on a radio show two years ago and I was the only one on the panel who didn't say that Ireland is a failed state and like I've been in South Sudan I know what a failed state looks like and we do need to be cautious about our language we are extremely fortunate to live in the part of the world that we live in however does that mean it's perfect? Far from it nowhere is perfect nowhere will be perfect but it can be so much better and certainly I think if we had a united Ireland you would have the north less dependent on decisions being made in London that they've no influence over but equally as an island working together would attract so much more investment would be would take a totally different approach probably to healthcare provision a lot of the the blocks that are there now you need that great disruptor you always hear businesses and businessmen and business people and entrepreneurs talking about great disruptors the United Ireland in a way is the great disruptor all those things that can't be done and you know we've never done it like that and you know that will require a change in spending or a tax increase or a real rethinking of you know simple things like religion in schools a lot of people don't want religion to leave schools and I think we have to respect that too but if we can move to a way like this is where we need to completely it's not a blank slate but like it's it's the best potential political buffet we've ever had mm. you know what we'll have a bit of that but we want to keep this it's going to be a new state and what I talk about unity and you talk about symbolisms and minority status like we've never really dealt with minorities in this state we've only had immigration in the last 20 years been very lucky that we've reacted to immigration thankfully the way I think we should have there's been moments you'd be worried with some things people mm. say but we are an emigrant people we've all had that emigrant experience and I'd like to think that we are we are genuinely a welcoming country can always do better but then we're going to have a minority a, a domestic minority of people who are British and how do we treat British people in United Ireland are there some people going like, oh, well, we don't want too much of a creep and, you know, we don't want to have to abandon things that we hold dear as civic nationalists or whatever label you want to put on yeah. us. But crucially, it's making sure that it doesn't matter where you grow up on this island, you have the same opportunities to have the same aspirations. That if you are from the Ardoin or the Shankill and you want to be a doctor, the state will never put any blocks in that way. Equally the same way, and this sounds a little bit self-indulgent, if you are coming from a, a part of the country where you're just expected to go to university and that's what you do and go and work in business, well, maybe that's not what you're meant to do. You know, maybe you should go into the trades or whatever you want to do. It's breaking that, those sort of... Right. Um, you look at places like Canada and the States, it really doesn't matter if you went to college or not. It matters who you are. And this is all very fluffy and waffly to your original question of no, how no, we no, break down division. No. But if you break down socioeconomic <clears throat> division, a lot of the big societal issues become so less important mm. and I think as a state like we don't thankfully have the archaic class system that people do in the UK we don't have that huge division we don't have schools that cost 50 grand a year to attend university is not wholly accessible but it's relatively accessible to those who want to go and there's ways and means but we could do so much more mm. in the United Ireland we could if you look at the possibility of okay rather than having 10 of one things if we have five brilliant things and um, we use it to make sure that we double down on our infrastructure. Yeah, it's what excites me. And I think unity is the natural, for me, it's a natural progression from Brexit. Yeah. I think Brexit has absolutely accelerated the conversation. The nature of Brexit has accelerated the conversation. It's made the likes of me being a lot more comfortable to really set out my stall. And the United Ireland I aspire to is probably very different than a lot of political colleagues. I don't have hang-ups on certain aspects that other people will be a little bit wary of. I'd like to think I have an element of an insight into the mindset of the unionist community because yeah. I'm related to some of them. 
and you know put the put the jerseys and the bunting away we're all the same yeah there's a push and I think and it's obviously a rightful push to make unionists and people who would identify as British feel comfortable but I often feel and I've heard I mean I've heard you speak at panels and stuff and I love Nordies, like I'm very open about my, my, my passion for Nordies and I wouldn't want to speak on their behalf. But I'm sure if they were here, if all Nordies were here, nationalist Nordies, I should specify, they would say that, you know, should the South do more to reach out to Northern nationalists as well? And I'd love to get your perspective on that because I know you've heard this point before and I'm not, I'm not making it about you. It happens all the time in the South where people just use language like Ireland and Northern Ireland. Mm. And I spent some time in West Belfast recently and, you know, there's this cartoony idea of the angry Nordy, like, and they're kind of like, you know, the Henry South turned their, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, that they turned their back on us and stuff. But actually, for instance, Danny Morrison would be would be a friend of mine, and he 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 was just articulating to me like that. There's a kind of a hurt as well as as well as a kind of a an anger. There's a hurt that if you hear somebody down south say Ireland and Northern Ireland, but they don't say Northern Ireland. Like mm. they, the nationalists don't even use that. I don't some. hear them use some. Okay, no, I think this is and this is something that I. I'm really deliberate about. Go on. So I'll never say the Republic of Ireland because it's a soccer term. Right. But I'll always say Ireland and Northern Ireland because legally that is the name of the jurisdictions. Right. And I believe in the legalities and everything by consent. Even so if saying, it causes offence to vast swathes of people Well, when in the someone North. then goes to me and goes like, well, when we're talking about the occupied six counties, I'm like, well, that's not really true either. Right. And like, everyone can be offended. And that's why I'll have no problem. Someone say like, well, I'd rather you call it the North. And I say, well, I appreciate that and I respect that. But it is Northern Ireland and I'm going to stick with that. And I think being a TD, it's a responsibility to stick to the actualities. OK. Um, so I would have been really pedantic during interviews and Brexit. And you'd be on with someone they go like, so Southern Ireland. And you go like, yeah, that's Cork. And the Republic <laughs> of Ireland, you go like, well, that's Roy Keane and Andrew Townsend. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> And that's why you have to consistently do it. Like the name of the state is Ireland and you don't call it ERA unless it's you're speaking Irish. So yeah. that's why I'm very deliberate about it. Okay. And there are a lot, a lot of nationalists who call it Northern Ireland. Um, I haven't met many. Yeah, I'll bring you to South Belfast. <laughs> They're a different type of nationalists. You'll love it. Like, I won't labour the point, but just to articulate, I think Danny and others' position, it's that like if you say Ireland and Northern Ireland, that for them, they are Irish. They, they are I part don't of Ireland. Dispute that, yeah. At all. And so they, they, I would they, always talk about everyone in Northern Ireland being Irish, yeah. Even those who see themselves as British, yeah. Because I mean, it's in the Good Friday Agreement, Agreement. It's in the Constitution, absolutely. That. So he just and it's also in the Good Friday Agreement in the Constitution that it's called Northern Ireland. Yes. And yes. But I, there's a really important point there beyond the, the labels yeah. of Northern Ireland and Ireland. We're really bad at reaching out to people in the north yeah and uh, so I'm very lucky I get to write an occasional column for the Irish news and one of my biggest criticisms of the Irish body politic in general north south is we don't engage with each other enough and particularly those of us in the south we ignore the north for more or less since the Good Friday Agreement until Brexit yeah and I would have been party to that I remember being on a panel in 2013 in Clare at a summer school and I was like none of my friends care about the north they don't talk about it Ditto. and now it's been brought back into everyone's living rooms again and thankfully okay there's a lot of as you say there's perceptions of anger and all this but you know they're not blowing each other up again and really trying to break down that silo that the more you spend time in the north not just Belfast across the north it's a spectacular part of our country Mm. and it's so warm and I've been in loyalist socialist clubs and you know well talked areas of Belfast and the welcome is the same 
and you usually crack a joke at the start with both groups. <laughs> you didn't expect to see me here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, and that breaks it down. And as I said, get back to my central point. We're all the same. Yeah. Even those of us who resist it. Um, but we societally as well as politically, need to focus in the next number of years so much more. There's potential in the shared island um, angle that the Taoiseach is pushing. I don't believe it goes far enough. But I think if we don't achieve that, if we don't get the basic sort of commonality that, oh, where are you going for the weekend? Sure, I'm going up to Derry. It's great. Yeah, That's where I'm going socially. I'm going up to Belfast. I'm going to watch a match. Again, getting out of your comfort zone, parts of the north that you wouldn't have gone to much. But equally, getting particularly my relations to come to the south a lot more and not just to go to the airport or a funeral. Yeah. Um, we had a grand uncle called Dixon who reveled in the fact that he'd never spent any punts in the free state. <laughs> and, um, you know... How are we here today, like? I know. And <laughs> I, I don't think Dixon would have been... He's not here along with us anymore. But I don't think he would have been too happy with me anyway. Uh, I have a, a granddad marketer... Like, I was doing Brexit stuff for years and been in politics for a while. And she was like, I saw you on the television. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's on Tonight Show or whatever. And I'm like, no, no, you're, you're on The View. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Dude, I'm like, I've never seen you on television before. And I was like, all right. You know, my ego crushed oh, at this yeah, stage. Yeah, yeah. And then the next time I was just like, you're in the newspaper. I was like, yeah, yeah, I was, yeah. You weren't very nice about Jeffrey. I was like, what? I was in the newsletter. Wow. And I was like, so you don't watch RT or read the Irish Times or the Independent? Wow. No. And like, how do you break down that mindset? Yeah. And like, I think one of the big tragedies in this sense, Daft, we don't have UTV anymore. Like, Julian retired. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and we didn't have the celebration, but you know what I mean? It's Cornish that Street went through the floor, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, if the more you watch and news from your, ter- from, your yeah. from where you are and you see BBC and you start to get a bit more cop on. And I know of a lot of friends up north who get really annoyed when they're geo-blocked from watching things on oh, RTE. Yeah. And like, I get that. For me, not being able to see things on UTV or the BBC iPlayer, it's annoying, but it's not a distinct threat to my identity. Mm. And these are the sort of things, these practical day-to-day things that we break down. And if it ends up in unity, magic. Yeah. And that's what I hope it does. But I'll say it to unionist colleagues, we need to do this anyway. We need to get more used to you coming down to Dublin, me going up to Newton Ards or wherever it is, and it not being a thing and that level of collegiality or just normality like that's what I hope to try and do whatever I can do in politics and probably go out and annoy people more than I intend to mm. over the next few years and say like you know what I sat beside Jerry Adams of Fela last week and here am I having lunch with Jeffrey Donaldson and the world hasn't collapsed people always forget that Ian Paisley used to always sit beside John Hume on the plane home from Strasbourg. Mm. And when they were abroad, like the few times he came to Brussels and Strasbourg, Ian Paisley always voted with the proverbial green jersey on when it came to agriculture and fisheries yeah. issues and then said horrible things about the Pope. But that sort of, <laughs> you know, that collective sense of being, yeah, it's really hard work. But I think a lot of the formulaic, you know, peace building, cross-community stuff is, is great. But it's the practical day-to-day bringing down barriers. I think that's what we need to do now. I think we're in a position where we can do it. So, yeah, I mean, just quickly on that one, like, I just, I suppose I feel, you know, as an outsider, that the kind of the wrongs to Northern Nationalists that the Southern state did for like 100 years, mm-hmm. I definitely want that to be part of, like, it was so interesting talking to you about your experiences as a Church of Ireland person in the South. 
And so then the experiences of nationalists and their parents and grandparents, what they experienced in the cold house that was yeah. Northern Ireland, I think that really needs to be part of the discussion. So I, I, I hope it becomes more front and centre than I think it, mm. that it has. And I think our new Ireland, if it's worth doing, has to be a warm Ireland. Yeah. I don't want it to be a place that Arlene Foster thinks she has to leave. Yeah. I want Arlene Foster to stay just as much and everyone else I want Arlene Foster on this podcast actually if she's listening yeah. but yeah so actually so just quickly on that so so uh, it's one of my questions like are you obviously you don't have to go into any detail but like you must be getting some hassle for your unity stance are you either inside the party or from distant relatives like because it seems surprising to me that somebody from your background would be as vehemently pro-unity mm. as you are and passionate and articulating the case very well. I think it's important if you believe in something that you have to be outspoken about it. And right. I, I feel, because of my background, I've been given a great opportunity mm. to speak with an element of authenticity. It's not as dramatic as, like, it's not like I was born on the Shankill. You yeah. Know, <laughs> like I always think of Wayne McCullough. Like, that was someone who really yeah. went out of his comfort zone. True. Like, Barry McGuigan was a big idol of mine growing up. Like, and he lived it. And he mm. took all the, like, he went and boxed in the Commonwealth Games in Northern Ireland. He's from Monaghan. And even to this day, like, puts up so with so much adversity. Um, do I get hassle about it? No, look, a lot of my relations, it's a great thing with family. You don't talk politics. And I think that's important. Yeah. And, like, I'd know well. Like, they're not ridiculously close relations. Like, but I would, within my friends group and peer group, people go, like, would you stop going on about the North? And, you know, and they, they come with this <laughs> typical generalised misapprehension about North, the North. And they're like, do we really want that trouble down here? And I'm like, oh. yeah, to be honest, like, because it won't be trouble and it'll be better. And they were like, oh, well, we can't afford it. And you go like, well, this, and I actually love hearing them say it because they go like, well, here's how we're going to debunk. Because these this is like, we're going to have a referendum in this in our lifetime. Mm. And we're going to have to be ready that a large portion of people in the South will not want this. And they mightn't want it for the most ridiculous reasons that we can't understand. It's like people who wanted Brexit thinking that there was all these Turks coming over to England. It wasn't true. Mm. And you have to be prepared. Like, I, I actually don't particularly like referenda. But if you're going to have one, make sure you know how you can get the result and people are informed. Brexit people weren't informed. Scottish independence people weren't informed. And they've learned from it. Yeah, We're lucky that we've had a lot of referenda in this jurisdiction so we know what processes need to be gone through. And you need to know that when the result is cast, this is what happens. And we need to be able to counter the source of the armchair because there's 20% of the population that will vote no to everything. And it's, it's quite dispiriting. They just will. Yeah. Like, don't like change. No. Yeah. I'm voting no because my bins weren't collected. Like these are the yeah. things that happen. I've certainly found within my own political party there is a bit of a generational Yes. Um, like obviously Simon and Leo are, are sound on the national question and if they start to be more outspoken on it Simon is Simon Coveney it is is a bit more constrained because of the position he holds as Minister of Foreign Affairs and that's understandable I think we need to respect that but there are people who maybe they were TDs in the 80s um, who saw some pretty hairy stuff and were involved in it and they're going to go why do we want to get ourselves involved in that they're scarred by the North they're kind of like why are we bringing that upon ourselves and a lot of people go like you know there's and they go to me like you know there's no votes in this you don't do this for votes. I am not going to convince the four and a half thousand people in my constituency who voted for Sinn Féin to vote for me. Just accept that it's a I, bit... I could have a word. Yeah, would you text No. Them? No, thanks. <laughs> Didn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. You'd be really good in politics. I'll definitely have <laughs> no chance. Uh, well, I'd uh, promise anything. Yeah. <laughs> but like, you're not fighting yeah. for votes on this. This is something I passionately believe in. And mm. I'm kind of looking at politics going like, this is something I might be able to play a small part of as someone who's elected. Like, 
big problem with being a politician is when you retire you kind of want to see your returns and say look well, what did I do yeah what did I vote for good bad or indifferent was able to push certain legislation down what can I hang my hat on and it really irritates me when you see politicians and they go like well what's your greatest achievement oh well I increased my first preference vote or I topped the yeah, poll yeah. no that's elections it's not politics yeah. whereas I'm still kind of scratching around going like well I managed to get a school into my area through a county development plan as a councillor you know you mm. need to be able to have the, the tangible wins and it used to be very rare in Ireland like opposition TDs didn't get private members bills passed that's because of the breakdown of the two and a half party system that's now and you had confidence and supply it's now a thing and there's lots of TDs and go like you know what I can actually say that piece of legislation wouldn't have been happened without my dogged persistence across the aisle and I think, like, all right, we're going to have this debate about United Ireland. I think it's coming. I don't think it's coming as soon as some people would like it, or indeed as I would like it, or as realistically. Like, the minute the balloon goes up, like, legislatively, we need 18 months to do the legislation to hold the referendum. So I think we have to be realistic about time frames. That doesn't mean we're putting it on the long finger or pretending it's not going to happen. We have an opportunity to have this discussion. And if you don't want it, fine. And I say to unions all the time, if you want the status quo, great, more power to you. Why? You should be prepared to say why the status quo or the union is so much better and it shouldn't just be some sort of headcount. The big responsibilities in those of us in this jurisdiction is the questions are going to be different. And like we can all talk about opinion polls and the gap is margining and, you know, reproductive rates in certain communities, all that sort of things. <laughs> um, I think we just need to be open that talking about United Ireland doesn't make you a shinner. Yeah. But equally, if we don't get the people who aren't shinners to talk and have their say voice their hopes aspirations concerns then it's an echo chamber mm. and like no one's like I'm not going to defect to Sinn Féin in the morning I'm fairly fairly <laughs> self-confident in my political beliefs I'm not going to be leaving Fine Gael ever but that doesn't mean I can't go out and talk about unity but like you say that there's no votes in it but I actually think and I'm, I'm stealing a Brent, Professor Brendan O'Leary point here when I say that like I think Fine Gael are very clever to, I feel like Fine Gael are entering into the space of the United Ireland conversations where you would have expected Fianna Fáil to be the party to do it now I'm an armchair politics mm. fan right so but from my perspective and obviously Brendan O'Leary is an awful lot more educated on it than I am but I do think it's a really Really good point that I think, you know, suddenly Fianna Gael have entered the, the space where maybe the more middle class voter that might be more likely to vote for Fianna Gael traditionally, say, might now be kind of thinking, well, OK, it feels like this train is going to the station that I certainly when I when I when I saw how vocal you were being some time ago as a person who would love to see United Ireland, I really welcomed that. Like I was like, OK, this is a significant change. And a kind of I'm not sure if that's a question or a comment, but a, a corollary question would be. Are we way behind in planning then? So again, a Brendan O'Leary point would be like, for instance, there's in Korea, in South Korea, there is a unity ministry. <laughs> there's a unity tax in South Korea as well. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's 0.5% of your income taxes is banked into a unity fund. And that's slightly different. We still haven't got over the fact that the majority of people in the North see themselves as British and don't want a united Ireland. So we can talk about all the planning and we can have all the wider conversations but if we're just talking to ourselves it's good but it's not the real deal yeah. and I don't think that'll happen until a referendum is called but I do think we need to and certainly like we need to prepare like this is where it's going to be decided so let's not lose ourselves on the flag or the anthem Yeah, let's leave that to the very very end but first up it's schools it's the voluntary contribution 
Um, how do we balance that out? How many, you know, hospitals do we need as many? This is going to be the one that, you know, I'd have all my colleagues from around the country going like, you're not going to start talking about closing hospitals, not. But like, what is our healthcare needs? Because the why I think Unity is so attractive, you have two separate jurisdictions on a very small island with a relatively small population and they're not working in concert. And we saw this with the pandemic. We could have done so much more and like it wasn't working in concert in the north and people mm. were talking about we need to have a um, the term is lost and we've kind of been chatting for too long. You know, we need to have a an all all party government or whatever. You know, any mistakes you're making are gone. Like. Yeah. The, so when we're talking about like an all in government. You're going like, well, hold on, like we're not going to agree. Yeah. Like you elect a government to make a decision. You vote for a party based on what they say they're going to do, and you hope they do it. It's not just well, we'll throw it all in and have all the different opinions because they don't always work together. And I just think that if we had the systems in place that we worked as a relatively small island with so many opportunities east, west, north, south of us um, only English language speaking country left in the EU common law jurisdiction a reputation for being open and welcoming and inventive lots of things that we need to work on but if we did it as one unitary state like you look at the Nordic countries you look at all these countries that are always top of various charts I think that's how we Mm. we could smash that glass ceiling it really excites me that we could be having this conversation and you and I could be canvassing on the same road together like nice and a couple of the referendums that I've been involved in repeal I wasn't as involved in marriage equality just because I wasn't as prominent a politician um, nothing to do with personal opinion far from it but like repeal I really got involved in that we just had our first kid and you know you'd, I'd sat through all those appointments that are difficult yeah. I just remember like um, didn't have a clue what anyone's politics were and it turned out the campaign was being led by the chairperson of Irigi. I was like, oh, I didn't expect the two of us to be having the Vance in a WhatsApp group together. Yeah. But it was actually really reassuring that for one moment you can have this clarity of mind and vision that you really don't care, you just believe in. And it was about one singular issue and half the people in my constituency got involved. That was their involvement. Back to, they're not going to get involved in a political party. They're not career campaigners or activists. And a good chunk of them didn't have a vote. You know, they were born in Australia or whatever else because it was a referendum. And that's something that we need to change. We need to change who's entitled to vote in our referendums and our elections. Mm. We're really, we have a really regressive approach to that. And it's not very popular when I say that within my own party. Like, why do you change anything? And um, that's what I'm really excited about. And going around the country and being that voice to the reluctant people, I think, in the South who are going, like, can we afford this? And I hope by then it's like, how can we afford not to do this? Mm. Exactly. Um, this is actually a bigger question, but I want—I really love your sense of it because I mean, you've 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 actually been working like with elements of the British media and British establishment. What's your personal take on why Britain, as a, a, a kind of a fastidious country in many ways, like created this situation for them? Like I don't know, shot themselves in the foot in this way. This this calamitous, what has now proven to be a calamitous error. What motivated it? And a quick corollary question: the, the Leave campaigners did they actually genuinely forget about the North? Do you think, or is there some element in them that thought was Brexit an opportunity for maybe the Farages of the world, where they they're really British as opposed to United Kingdom? That did they forget, or was there a little bit of malice and kind of cutting the North off? So I'll start with that bit because it's actually starting to play out mm. so clearly. The Conservative and Unionist Party are only unionists when it suits them. Theresa May genuinely believed in the Union. She saw Northern Ireland as being no different yeah. than Norfolk. I, I really respect that. Mm. I, I have a lot of respect for someone who just got beaten up by her own party. The people who are driving the Leave movement and the government moment 
don't care. Yeah. And electorally, and this sort of comes to beneficially, the seats are to be won in England, and you focus on the issues that will get the win in England, and Brexit empowers them. There is an awful lot of ignorance about Northern Ireland in English politics across both the main parties. Some brilliant people who are really clued in. Mm. You've got Labour politicians who obviously come from an Irish background are really passionate about it. You've Conservative politicians that had served there with the British Army or had grown up there. And they do bring different opinions and real different outsets. But no, Northern Ireland just wasn't considered. It'll be fine. Because the more you focused on Northern Ireland, the referendum, realise this is going to cause huge troubles. Economically, socially, never mind mm-hmm. the troubles. Like, if anyone had actually dedicated a couple of days campaigning about status in Northern Ireland post-Brexit, it would have been that thread that pulled the entire jumper apart. And that's why I think it was deliberately ignored as well. And for the Remain side, equally, there are no votes in that. Like, they knew Northern Ireland would probably vote Remain. To be honest, I actually thought Northern Ireland would vote more Remain than it did. Mm. Um, but it's the same way, yeah, Tony Blair, he got a bounce of the Good Friday Agreement. But, you know, it, it wasn't wasn't why people voted for him. In a lot of ways, the peace process was in train anyway. Mm. And the real sacrifices were being made by people on the ground in the north and government officials on both sides. Why Brexit happened is a salutary lesson to all of us. And there's a couple of things. I remember I lived with a couple of English guys when I lived in Brussels and they're pro-European and all that. And I remember a continental guy, I think he was French or Belgian, and he said, oh, you're Irish, obviously pro-European. And I was like, yeah, but okay, yeah, sure, grand, we'll take with that. And he sent to the English guys and he said, why are you pro-European? And started going on better than he goes like, but you do realise, British people don't realise they lost the war too. They had as much economic and social hardship. Mm. They weren't invaded. Okay, Jersey was. Like, they came out the winners and they did great. But the whole, how the European project came to being was six defeated country who were absolutely on their oxters, socially, economically, had lost a generation, were staring in the face of huge atrocities committed by their own people. And this is the second time they did it in the space of a generation. They came together because they were absolutely broken. And they came together just real basically, we just don't want this to happen again. Whereas at the time, the UK was still chasing Russia and the US to be one of the superpowers. Now, based on population and geography, that boat had sailed at this stage. And so they didn't get in the project. So when they eventually came into the European project, and it's great that they eventually did because we wouldn't have got in with the Danes, they were always slightly outside it. They weren't in at the ground floor from the start of it. And there was this impression was allowed to develop. Like the first thing they did is they had a referendum in 1975 to leave. Mm. But um, there was this sort of... <laughs> Classic Britain, like. Yeah, it's like, this is great, <laughs> is it? Um, and everyone forgets that the Tories were the pro-European ones and Labour yeah. were anti-Europe. Like Tony Blair has to still leave it with him why we should leave the EEC. Mm. <laughs> Changed drastically yeah. over the years, Tony. And it was all about like, oh, well, we, we, we don't need the single market, but turns out it'd be very useful if we did. And it was always like, Brussels is man demanding us to do that. And you have all the skits like Yes Minister and Alan Bastard. Like it all kind of came through. Like there mm. initially was a great sausage speech. Um, <laughs> but I turned to a few friends who were really involved in the Remain campaign. And there was various stages during the Brexit negotiations that as the real pro-European who was going on to BBC to give a kick into Andrew Bridgen or whoever it was, they go like, oh, you've left us, you've betrayed us because you've agreed the backstop or you're selling the protocol or wherever it is. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm looking after myself here and Irish and European interests. You had a referendum that you failed to win because you had politicians that spent 40 years blaming everything on Brussels, from straight bananas to... <laughs> mad cow disease to blue passports and then tried to turn around in six weeks and say why it was worth staying in. All right, you lost by the skin of your teeth. But 
like even John Burko, who's held up as a pro-European and he, he's stuck it to the government various times. He was in the ERG. He was one of their founding members. He was an office holder. He was in the Monday Club as well. Like, <laughs> it's so easy to be a latent Eurosceptic. And we occasionally see this. And we've had the experience of Lisbon and Nice, where people go like, well, you take it for granted. So we're going to teach you a lesson. And if you don't talk about Europe and its relevance and every second of our daily lives, something is happening in the EU. And, you know, we're not being told what to do by someone from Belgium or Luxembourg. These are Irish people, just as much as they're Belgian or Luxembourg. And we talk about identity and what it means to be Irish. I fundamentally believe myself to be a European mm. and really embrace it. And I've no desire to live in Brussels. I've desire to stay living in my home in Dublin and talk about being European in that context. Just because we're an island doesn't mean we should be caught off adrift. Mm. But unfortunately, too many people in England took it for granted. Easy punching bag when you needed it. Oh, Brussels is telling us again. And, yeah. you know, if it wasn't for Brussels, I could be having a pint of beer and look, I'm having to use kilometres instead of miles. All this daft nonsense. And the Leave campaign ratched into two or three mistruths, um, to be polite. Uh, you know, there was 70 million Turks were about to yeah. uh, migrate in. The big there's, only, there's only a population of 76 million, <laughs> you know. And the same people who said like, oh, now Norway are going to leave the EU. They're not in the EU. They can't leave if they're not in. Um, and well, was, give them a chance. Yeah, no, they, they, <laughs> they won't be joining soon as much as we'd love to have them. And there's all this mistruths that were perpetuated. Mm. Oh, look, I can't get a job and it's because of immigration. And you're like, well, it's not EU immigration. And also, you're not getting a job because this guy has a PhD and he's a civil engineer and he's the guy we want to build the road, not you. Yeah. And you know, stop blaming this concept. And it was a real nasty strain that we don't have in Ireland yet. I hope we never do. Mm. You see it throughout the continent of Europe, if I blame foreign influences. I have been told that I work for George Soros a couple of times. <laughs> no, me too. Really, me too. really <laughs> proud of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> really tight with the paycheck. But anyway, um, <laughs> so I think that's, that's unfortunately how Brexit happened. And people go on to me like, stop slagging off Brexit or stop saying how the EU is great. You know, it's not perfect. I know well it's not perfect. But there's people who love making a career about its imperfections and ignoring the 95% of things it gets right. And when you have to have a discussion about it, people only remember the loud noises you're talking about. Oh, uh, you know, a, a Polish fishing vessel in Bantry or a mistimed agricultural inspection in Tipperary. And no one talks about the sheer basic things. And my grandparents' generation lived through the Second World War. My grandparents died when I was a kid, so I don't, never had that conversation. But you'd find a gas mask... You know, yeah. and you kind of go like, all right, yeah. And kind of like, yeah, we didn't know what a banana was, you know, and that sort of stuff. And you kind of go like, we take that massively for granted. And that generation in, in the UK, sadly, a lot of them died off. But they're the ones who thought, well, we won the war. V-Day, mm. Blitz Spirit. Oh, like if I see Aaron Banks talking about the Blitz Spirit one more time, I'm going like, you weren't even born when it happened. It was mm. 20 years and like it was really miserable. There was no happiness in hiding in a tube station and having to eat tin sardines five days a week whilst your husband or your son, you're just waiting for that letter. Yeah. And you go back to this sounds daft and it's, it's a real segue into the mentality of the generations that went before us and thankfully for all the adversity we've had to put up with, it hasn't been that bad. At the end of the day, like... You know, you know, I can't get Wi-Fi. Oh, no, what a problem. I had to give a, a speech in my old school about the armistice, the centenary of the end of the World War One, and a load of pupils had gone and fought and died. And um, mm. it worked out on average every fortnight, a telegram came back to say a past pupil wow. had died. And, like, these weren't men. 
the average age is 19. Wow. So they'd only just left. Most of the people who were in the school probably would have been there at the same time. They were younger siblings. And the principal was a, a Methodist clergyman and he'd get up and regret to announce that um, so-and-so from the class of two years ago who captained the rugby team and had a lovely smile bought it on the Somme or wherever it was. And for three of those four years, his son was on active duty. So every time he was reading out the letter, it was about one of his son's classmates or peers. And I was just thinking, like, how did... He'd get the telegram from the family or from the war office. Like, how was he then to get up and regret that it was actually my son? Now, thankfully, his son made it through. Mm-hmm. We talk about hardship and adversity and the Brexiteers talk about blitz spirit. I'm sorry, you know, giving out about issues about milkshakes and McDonald's and chicken and Nando's is nothing compared to that. And you love history... I love history. The beauty about history is you learn from past mistakes. Yes. And I think when we talk about the prospect for United Ireland and people's fears, it isn't the fear of our grandparents' generations. We don't see people from different religious or political backgrounds as enemies who we've never met. And even you only go back a generation, you know, particularly in parts of the north where the street, you know, the peace walls and all this, Mm. that's breaking down. But we have to break down slowly and compassionately and you talk about how the North was a cold place for nationalists and Catholics and how the South was, the Free State was a cold place for Unionists and Protestants. Like the United Ireland, let's have the heating on the whole time, you know? Yeah. And that it's not worth doing if we don't do it right. Lovely. Very, very last question. It's a short question. It's a difficult one. You know, this will hurt you. But do you think there's a slight chance that your great-great-granddad might have forcibly removed my great-great-granddad off his land? And if so, should you apologise to me now? No, because my great-great-granddad bought his land off the Land Commission. We were tenant farmers as well, and that is perhaps a misconception people forget about. Well, folks, I'll have to fact-check that afterwards, So, and I'll release the details of it on Twitter. Neil Richmond, absolute pleasure for your time. Thank you so much. So that's it, guys. Um, really enjoyed that, doing that. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. There's nothing left for me to do now except to just sit back and watch the unfollowing pouring in. Because the last time that I did something with Neil Richmond, we did a little sketch together, and I think I lost uh, maybe about 100 or 200 followers, just kind of rabid Republicans going, you have left the Patrick Pierce's dream down. You have failed us because you have spoken to the enemy. And to those people, what I'd say in no uncertain terms is, goodbye. Yeah, just goodbye. Just don't let the door s- slam your your face on the way out mister because i don't i don't care frankly i don't care i don't care right? i'm just going to talk to whoever i want to talk to please please don't go don't leave me i do anything bet you wish you were here